Welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter, and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by one of my training colleagues here at Tax Banter, Nicole Rowan, who is a senior tax trainer. Nicole has a Bachelor of Laws with Honours, is a solicitor of the Supreme Court of Victoria, and holds a grad DPED and a Diploma of Management. She is a lawyer who has previously worked at Morris Blackburn and the ATO, where she worked in litigation and dispute resolution and the aggressive tax planning area of the private groups and high wealth individuals program, including SMSFs. Nicole has held various senior positions, both in commerce and accounting practices, and in the community, not-for-profit and charity sector. And she has worked on charity regulation reform at the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission. Nicole, welcome back to TaxIAC. Great to be here again, Robin. Thanks for having me. And look, the last time we certainly recorded our podcast together, we were in our boardroom at Tax Banter and life was a little more normal. Um, today, you're in your home office, I am in mine, and we're doing this over Zoom. Let's be honest, I'm in my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> it but is very different. It's very, it, things have really changed for everyone. And everyone is working under some really difficult um, situations at the moment, children at home uh, who are supposed to be schooling online. So, yeah, our world has changed dramatically. It is amazing we've still got the technology that we can do this. Yes, it's good. All right, so today I thought you and I could have a chat about where we're at with JobKeeper. It is without doubt the most complex part of the government's economic stimulus package announced on the 30th of March. The legislation was enacted on Easter Thursday, that was the 9th of April, and we've had further developments and and even further announcements as recently as last Friday from the Treasurer. It is dominating the queries that we're getting from our clients in training sessions, and Unlike the cash flow boost, which really is more mechanical and you just lodge your activity statements as normal, you don't need to apply and the ATO works it all out for you. JobKeeper requires people to apply for it or businesses to apply. And of course, it requires you to work out if you're eligible. And there's the overlap with the Fair Work Act. So there are quite a lot of differences with this and it's just making it incredibly challenging. And I needn't point out to everybody that uh, we're recording this on Monday the 27th of April. And in fact, we've got a wage condition that needs to be met by this Thursday, the end of April. The first two fortnights, wage conditions have to be met. So it's providing a, a bit of a challenging environment isn't it? It is and it's not helped by the fact that things are actually continuously changing so we had an announcement from the Treasurer on Friday afternoon uh, the um, 20 help me out 4th of April and we are waiting now for some amended rules that will actually determine eligibility and those that do become eligible as a result of those amended rules need to meet the wage condition by the 30th of April. So, And we don't have those amended rules just yet. So it's a really tough ask for everyone at the moment, not just, um, not just us, but those in Treasury, those in the ATO, who we all know are basically working around the clock. Um, accountants, uh, I think this is the only thing that they're working on at the moment. And uh, it's really difficult for everyone just to work through all of their employers and determine eligibility and ensure that they're actually meeting the eligibility requirements, which is meeting that. The main one, of course, is uh, for those um, who are eligible under Division 2 for employees is getting that wage condition made in time. Agreed. I think it would be also helpful just to remind practitioners out there that this all sits within a legislative framework and it's really important whenever you're giving advice to clients that you have the law in front of you. Now, tax agents are exempt from the normal rules that prevent someone giving advice on laws unless they're a qualified lawyer. As a tax agent, you can give tax advice, but that requires you really to sit down with the law. And in this context, it includes the legislation that brought in the JobKeeper framework itself, the JobKeeper scheme. So we have the um, Benefits and Payments Act, and I won't give the full name of it, because it's got a coronavirus uh, built into there as well. But we've got the legislation. There's the explanatory memorandum that supports that act. But for those of us who immediately jumped onto that bill the moment that it hit Parliament, we quickly ascertained that what we wanted by way of detail, eligibility rules, who's in, who's out, was actually not in that legislation at all. All that did was set up 
a framework. And this was quite deliberate because they wanted the Treasurer to have the power to be able to modify it, adapt it, change it, and even withdraw it. So if I can be um, an absurd optimist for a moment, Nicole, let's assume by next week the sound of vaccine... By the end of June, we're all back at work. Everything's reopened. The economy economy bounces back. Mm -hmm. It is possible the Treasurer may say, you know what, we don't need JobKeeper anymore, so we're going to chop it short by three months. He has got the power to do that. Conversely, if I be the pessimist, we could find ourselves still in this situation at Christmas time, in which case he would have the power to then extend it if necessary. So this is all quite adaptable and scalable, as they say. And that's why these rules for JobKeeper have been put inside a legislative instrument, which itself has its own legislative statement. And this is all the legislative side of it. And then on top of that, um, could you comment briefly on all the ATO guidance we're getting? Because that's coming out almost every day and we're getting guidance from the Fair Work Ombudsman and we're getting guidance from Treasury. That's right. So there's a plethora plethora of information out there, which is good on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's changing so rapidly and that can be a bit of a challenge. I actually think the, the government's decision to actually set up a framework and then have the rules separate to that that were actually able to be modified and adapted was a reasonable thing to do. I I think that was quite okay. The problem is, I guess, that there's been some additional changes and that hasn't helped um, in terms of accountants being sure about eligibility for clients. The changes I think that they've uh, announced are welcome, but it's the time time frame of them coming so soon or, or so close to the end of April. Yes, so, I agree. You, and we can talk about those specific amendments later. Yeah. So what we've got, as you said, we've got Treasury fact sheets, which have been regularly updated, the most recently on Saturday, the 25th of April. Then, of course, we've got ATO guidance. Some of that guidance... It, well, is being regu- regularly updated. So sometimes the ATO is, is almost creating a platform for information such as the alternative tests. And then when they get that information, they add that to that platform that already exists. So th- there is a bit of a requirement to actually just keep going back and checking. There's no, I guess, one clearinghouse of information that is available when anything changes. So I'm finding we're refreshing pages on a regular basis. Um, So perhaps not ideal, but um, I don't know how else we could could do it at the moment. We've got so many different agencies involved. Mm, mm. Bringing in the, the Fair Work Commission is definitely a new thing for accountants uh, and practitioners. I know they're getting a lot of questions that are in relation to employment law and they're not necessarily in a position to answer them. Um, so there's a lot of um, on-referring going on as well. That, that, and perhaps well, that Can I ask you about that, Nicole? Because a practitioner really shouldn't be advising on employment law if they're not qualified to do so. So That's right. how should practitioners go about dealing with these, in many cases, very much fair work questions like can I insist my employee does a certain number of hours per week or can they stay at home or can they um, credit back their annual leave in order to take JobKeeper instead? There are all sorts of questions being asked. So how should practitioners go about dealing with these questions? (laughs) I don't know really how to advise that. I know that there is information on the Fair Work Commission website. I know that there are some uh, media articles out there. I know that, you know, the ABC and other of the commercial channels are, are running sessions on these kinds of questions and there's people out there willing to provide the answers, but it's a, a matter of who needs to go and get that information. It's probably not appropriate for the practitioners to go and find that information and pass it on. Perhaps the practitioners need to refer the employers, their employer clients to the relevant bodies. It might be that the unions have the information if they're in a, um, a unionised environment. Um, I will say that we're going to try and help out some of the practitioners in the industry uh, later this week. I'm going to be having a, a ta- another Taxiac podcast recorded with Patrick Turner from Morris Blackburn. He's a, um, a senior associate employment lawyer there and we'll be putting some of the questions that we have to him. And he has already been active in the media and answering questions about what employers can and cannot do. Uh, but their the first stop probably should be the Fair Work Act. It should 
be uh, via the, the Fair Work Commission. They certainly have some information about the existing laws that were in place before we had JobKeeper, but also the critical changes that were made in relation to JobKeeper payments to the Fair Work Act. And we know now that there's uh, what's called JobKeeper enabling directions that employers need to be consistent with if they're going to stand down employees whilst paying them JobKeeper, if they're going to ask them to work different hours, uh, perform different duties, change their location of work, etc. So uh, employers Nicole, need to... Uh, yeah. uh, sorry, are these permanent changes to the Fair Work Act or are these just going to be temporary for the duration of the JobKeeper scheme? So at the moment, these changes are in place until the 28th of September, which is consistent with the JobKeeper, current JobKeeper payment timeframe. So the 27th of September is the last JobKeeper fortnight. Uh, so these will basically, they have a sunsetting clause, so uh, they will end then. But of course, that will also be dependent and, and um, on, you know, whether JobKeeper payment is ended earlier or is extended, etc. So that's, um, I guess the timing of it is consistent with the availability of the JobKeeper payment. One of the key aspects of the um, changes to the rules is meeting the wage condition. So, uh, and coming back to the tax um, element of it, the wage condition is that the employer needs to ensure that all eligible employees receive in each relevant JobKeeper fortnight uh, the $1,500, whether that's via wage as part of the, the PAY, um, POYG withholding, whether it's salary sacrifice, superannuation, but it needs to total 1500 per fortnight. And they need to do so for all eligible employees who have provided their nomination notice and ticked, yes, I want to receive the JobKeeper payment. And we know that because we've got a one-in, all-in principle that is applied to the JobKeeper payment, then that wage condition has to be met, as I said, for all eligible employees. They, they, the employer cannot pick and choose which employees they're going to pay that JobKeeper payment to or meet that wage condition in relation to. And one of the safeguards, I guess, that was put into the Fair Work Act just for the purposes of the JobKeeper payment was that if a employer doesn't meet the wage condition for an eligible employee, then they can actually be subject to some fairly hefty penalties. So these are under Section 789 GD of the Fair Work Act. So the new section under Part 6-4C, uh, just for the purposes of the JobKeeper payment. And if they don't meet the wage condition, that will be a breach under Section 789 GD of, um, and the penalty is 60 penalty units. So that is the equivalent of $12,600 or if it's a serious contravention, the penalty, penalty is 600 penalty units, i.e. $126,000. That's per contravention, so per fortnight per employee. So the ramifications... So for, for many employers, Nicole, it's not just a case if I don't meet the wage condition, I might not be eligible to get JobKeeper from the ATO. There are some pretty serious ramifications under the Fair Work Act. That's right. And that's why uh, practitioners and their employers need to be aware of this. It's not just accountability to the ATO, I guess, and the, the laws that the ATO is administering. It's also accountability to the Fair Work Act and the laws that the Fair Work Commission are administering. And and that um, they're actually being blended together. So the wage condition has to be met in order for the ATO to reimburse the employer for that amount of 1500 per fortnight. But that wage condition has to be met for eligible employees as well in order to avoid uh, a penalty under the, Fair Work, the changes to the Fair Work Act. So it's fairly serious. It's, it's really important that employers are really clear about their obligations. Nicole, you discussed the one-in-all-in rule or uh, certainly alluded to it by saying that the wage condition has to be met for all eligible employees. Now, this is an issue that I have been seeking guidance on and clarification for quite some weeks now. The background to this is when the explanatory statement was released, which accompanied the rules that were registered by the Treasurer on late Easter Thursday, the statement, which is the, the guidance provided by Treasury, certainly made it clear that you had to put all of your eligible employees into JobKeeper if you were participating in the scheme and that you couldn't select which employees you put in and you couldn't cherry pick or choose them. Now, I 
have crawled through the rules many, many times in the last few weeks, and there's certainly nothing in them that says that the employer must nominate every eligible employee. It's always done on a per employee basis and the employee must agree to be nominated and they have to meet certain conditions. And so we've had this mismatch between what the policy intent was from Treasury, that yes, the employer has to put everybody into it, and the reality of what the rules were that were actually registered. And so for some weeks I would, um, and I was continuing to go back to the ATO saying, where do we stand on this? Um, guidance is coming out from the Fair Work Ombudsman's office that seemed to support this, but again, the the language used across all of the guidance products was quite inconsistent. The ATO finally confirmed to me that yes, we uh, have taken the position it's one in all in. And that has now been clarified because one of the amendments that the Treasurer has said he will make to the rules mm. is that, in fact, the rules will reflect that policy intent. Now, I welcome this. I think it is very good to finally have that clarification and it will be very clear in the rules that you can't cherry pick from your employees. Um, my observation would be it shouldn't have been necessary in the first place. In other words, this is as fundamental as am I eligible and how much do I get? It should have been very clear from the outset whether or not you had a choice as to who you put in touch. So the amendment to the rules will be good, but it should have been there from the very beginning. Now, the implication of all yeah. this, of course, means that if I have 100 staff, I will have to pay them at least $1,500 a fortnight in the JobKeeper periods up front. This is not a case of receiving the amount from the ATO and then paying your staff, as I continue to see in this information being published or, or discussed amongst businesses. It's very important everyone understands that you have to meet this wage condition up front. You then get reimbursed by the ATO. And so if you've got 100 employees and you can't afford to pay them all 1500 up front, the government's suggestion is go and talk to your bank. Well, that may not suit everyone, and I am hearing some reports that the $250,000 quick access loan that's supposed to be available to SMEs is not as quick access as the government may have been suggesting. Mm -hmm. The other problem is if you have employees who are more likely long-term casuals, so they might be part-timers or, or casual workers, but they've been there at least 12 months, and also working regularly and systematically, that they could be on less than 1500 a fortnight. They might be on $300 a fortnight. Yes. Yep. And so they will get an automatic pay rise, a, a top-up, if you like, because of the fact they must receive at least $1,500. Now, an employer who doesn't like that, well, I guess they could make that staff member redundant, but this flies in the face of trying to keep that employment relationship alive and try and keep the relationship going so the business can be resurrected. Yeah, I think this is where there's a bit of a tension between the policy intent and the actual capability of employers from a cash flow perspective. So if we go back to the policy intent, the, the government, I, I think, initially tried to keep businesses going, we saw with the instant asset write-off and the cash flow boost rules and so forth. Then I think once we had some government directions, directions to shut businesses, the physical distancing rules, they needed to change their approach and that was to actually support businesses to hibernate. Or I think as you described it, to uh, kind of put them on the simmer rather than um, so we can bring them back to a boil quickly. So, to, yeah, so to, can I just think, I'll just explain that further because someone else yep. had that analogy. <laughs> this is the best way I can explain JobKeeper. A business that is fully operating and, and all guns blazing is on the boil. Yep. And the economy is not in that position at the moment. The last thing the government wants to do is turn the gas off so that that saucepan of boiling water turns stone cold. Yep. Because if it then wants to bring it back to the boil, it takes a long time to do so. So the theory behind JobKeeper is we're going to keep the gas running, but we're going to turn it down really, really low. We're going to keep it on a simmer because if it's lukewarm, it's much easier to bring it back to the boil than do so from cold water. And it's the best yes. way I can explain what this is designed to do. It's a great analogy. And, and we, you know, it's certainly that is what the government wanted to see. They wanted to maintain that relationship between the employees and the employees so that when, um, when the time came to actually get those businesses back up to uh, the boiling point, as you say, they can get there quickly. They can bring those staff, you know, uh, back, you know, onto location or, or into their functioning roles in a very quick way because there has been that ongoing relationship. So that was the, the policy intent. I would say that additional to, to that, it, 
the um, I think part of the policy was to take some of the pressure off Centrelink as well, almost like a, a privatisation of Centrelink. So instead of having what we saw on about the 22nd, 23rd of, of March, instead of having, you know, Centrelink, you know, absolute being, being um, absolutely are smashed with with new applicants then there's some people who through the receipt of the job seeker payment actually now don't need to turn to centrelink for payment via the job seeker um mechanism can i also give you a, a cynical approach too <laughs> no. if we've got if we've got someone who loses their job and they've gone to job seeker that counts towards the unemployment figures if they remain employed, albeit through JobKeeper, then there are suggestions that the unemployment rate, which might otherwise have risen to 15% unemployment, mm. might in fact only reach about 10%. So in other words, it makes the government look a little bit better because the unemployment figures aren't as atrocious as they could have been. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, granted, that's that's possibly part of it as well. So, So that's the government's policy intention. But... Unfortunately, in the delivery of it, they are relying on employers having cash reserves to actually pay those amounts up front uh, in some ways um, up to a month ahead of when they actually get reimbursed for the amounts. And that's where I think the, the concept of the job seeker payment has actually not necessarily, um, met, you know, in meeting the reality, isn't actually as effective as it might have been because there's, there's so many employees that just don't have that cash. And as you say, the response by the government of, you know, talk to your bank hasn't, um, hasn't again, it's not, not um, I guess, practical in reality for them to, to get that money from their bank in quick time. And some of them just don't have that relationship with the bank anymore that, that they can turn um, you know, an application, even if it's bridging finance around in in such a, a quick time. We know now, and we should point out that um, through government pressure, the banks have now set up JobKeeper helplines, or hotlines, I think they're called. So um, a lot of the banks have those hotlines. So if you do need to talk to the bank and you need to talk to them urgently, certainly have have a search for your bank and what their hot, JobKeeper hotline number is, because that might help you to move the process through um, a little more quickly than if you just go through the normal mechanisms. But but having that cash flow is, and particularly having that cash flow in the context of a one in all in rule is what is actually, I think, um, where things are falling down at the moment. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, I'd agree with that. A couple of things I wanted to clarify for listeners. There's still a bit of confusion over what we call a Division 2 and a Division 3 entity. Yes. So what I'm referring to, a Division 2 entity means an employer that qualifies for JobKeeper under Division 2 of the JobKeeper rules. And that means that they're eligible on the basis of paid employees. Whereas a Division 3 entity is eligible under Division 3 of the rules and it's eligible on the basis of business participation. Now, one of the critical differences between the two is that we've been speaking uh, a number of times already in this discussion about the wage condition, and this is the minimum $1,500 a fortnight that has to be paid to eligible employees. There is no such requirement under Division 3 of the rules. So if you are registering an entity because of business participation, and it does require you to nominate an individual who is an eligible business participant, there is no requirement that the entity pay that individual the $1,500 a fortnight. So to come back a step, with the wage condition under Division 2, the employer has to pay the wages up front as you've been discussing. Yes. Then the ATO reimburses the employer for the $1,500 per fortnight. Whereas the Division 3 entity, they receive the $1,500 from the ATO, but there's no requirement either before or after that time for a payment to be made out to the individual. So in both cases the employer under Division 2 or the entity under Division 3 will be accessible on what they receive from the ATO. Yes. Now, with the employer, if they then pay those amounts on, and I say if, because in some cases, the employee will be earning more than $1,500 a fortnight. Yes. So the wage condition has already been met. So the ATO payment that goes to the employer doesn't necessarily, in that form, pass on, of course, to the employee. So the employer, in some cases, will typically 
be reimbursed. It's a, a genuine subsidy and it will help that's pay right. for the cost of the wage that, that they've already paid. That will operate as a subsidy. That's right. Mm. Correct. Whereas Division 3, it's accessible income to the entity and what they do with it after that really is up to them. So my view is it just goes into retained profits or forms part of their accessible income and then it can be distributed out to normal beneficiaries or shareholders or partners as you ordinarily would. Mm. Now the catch is whilst under Division 2 you can well, not can, you are required to provide a nomination form to all of your eligible employees and then pay all of them who are eligible to 1500 a fortnight. With the Division 3 entity, you're limited to one $1,500 receipt. So in other words, you can only nominate one individual. Um, is that inequitable? Many would argue if we're paid mum and dad a wage out of the business, they would have got $3,000 of payment from the ATO, how, and that is per month. But if we're talking about a Div 3 entity, it'll only get $1,500. And that's just that's right. a design feature. It is a design feature, and we have to accept that the whole mechanism was put together very, very quickly. There's going to be some issues with the way that it's been rushed, um, I guess, and I mean, that's why I guess we're still seeing some changes. But as, um, as our director, Neil Jones, says, unfortunately, a line had to be drawn somewhere and some people will fall on one side and be fortunate and others will fall on the other side. But, but there had to be a line drawn and, and I think this is one of those scenarios where the, the Div 3 entities only get, as you say, one individual business um, participant, of course, who has to meet all their ad- eligibility requirements. And if you've got a partnership of three individual partners, I don't know, they might be fighting over it. But, uh, but as you said, ultimately, the, um, the 1500 gets paid to the entity, not actually to the nominated individual. So ultimately, yeah. it's up to the entity, um, whether it's the partnership or the trust or company, as to then how they treat that amount. And of course, they have to accept whatever consequences uh, arise from the treatment of that amount too, in terms of whether, well, if you... whether or how they're paying it out or whether they're retaining it. Well, if you and I were two partners in a partnership, Nicole, then our partnership gets 1500 um, Let's say we've nominated you as the, the actively engaged person who's involved in the business, um, but you and I are still both partners. So it just means we will basically share that distribution, 750 each, when it eventually passes out of the, uh, the structure. Yes, and of course, we'll be receiving it as profits. We won't be receiving it as a wage because they, um, as partners in the partnership, we're not able to contract with ourselves, so we can't pay ourselves a wage. Which is why we kind of needed this alternative too. And if it was a trust scenario where we were beneficiaries of a trust, there is no requirement for the trust which has never registered for PAYG withholding before, never Mm. enrolled in STP, never set up payroll systems. It's not required to do so because there's no requirement to pass this payment out to us as a wage. And in fact, if it did pass the payment out as a wage, would that then actually make that individual ineligible because they'd now be an employee of the trust? Hmm. Yes, it would, because one of the conditions of being a Div 3 eligible business participant is you're not employed by that entity or, in fact, by any other other than on a casual basis. And that's an important um, point there, that second one you made. You cannot be employed by any other entity other than on a casual basis. So that has actually ruled out a few um, otherwise eligible business participants uh, under Division 3. Some have... Some have said that uh, the other employer doesn't go on to JobKeeper or they're not helping me out with mm-hmm. JobKeeper payments. Um, that's beside the point. The, yeah. the rules say yep. you are not able to be employed by anyone else other than as a casual. The rules are the rules. In fact, these are ones are actually called rules. Um, I should also note before we finish up on Div 2, Div 3 differences that you can actually be an entity that's eligible under Div 2 and under Div 3. And that's worth noting too. So if, for example, you're running a business through a trust and you're employing staff, then you're going to um, potentially be eligible under Division 2 as long as you meet all the eligibility tests, etc. But then you may also be able to enrol under Division 3 for, um, for example, for one trust beneficiary who's not otherwise employed uh, by the trust or by another entity. I agree. I agree. Um, I also wanted to comment on some of the issues with turnover because this is generating a lot of interest and discussion. And I might give this some context and explain what's going on with all this. Sure. The eligibility.
eligibility requirements, and whether we're talking about a Division 2 employer or a Division 3 entity that is involved in the business participation side, both of them would have to satisfy the decline in turnover test. So this is a, a critical feature of the JobKeeper system that you're only eligible to receive it if your turnover has gone down. The concepts they're using, and I'm, I'm struggling to recall any other provision in our tax laws that combine both income tax and GST concepts in the one provision. And the reason I say that is that you have to start with your aggregated turnover. Now, aggregated turnover is a concept in the income tax laws. In fact, it sits within the small business entity rules in 328.115. And it talks about ordinary income from carrying on a business and you group with your affiliates and entities connected with you. The point of working out your aggregated turnover is to work out whether you're over $1 billion. That's billion with a B. Because if you're over $1 billion, and that will not be most of our listeners, then a 50% or more decline in turnover has to be achieved or satisfied. That's right. Whereas if you're up to $1 billion in turnover, which will be, of course, the, the SME market and, and some of the larger businesses, then they only have to satisfy at least a 30% decline in their turnover. So that's the role that the aggregated turnover test plays, and that's where it ends. That's right, yeah. If you then establish that we have to satisfy at least a 30% decline in turnover, that's now based on GST concept. And I have to say, Nicole, this has been a source of uh, endless confusion and conjecture about what this actually means. And I'm going to actually refer to Gary Payne, one of our senior tax trainers at Tax Banter, who I think has done a, a wonderful analysis for us to explain exactly how this sits together. Now, the starting point in the JobKeeper rules is that your GST turnover has to decline. What are we actually comparing? Well, what we're comparing is the projected GST turnover with the current GST turnover. And I'm going to pause there and say, even this terminology is really unhelpful. Yes. Because normally projected and current GST turnover from Division 188 in the GST Act, it's talking about current months and you go forward or back 11 months. But for this purpose, it's modified and we simply look at the month or the quarter in question. But the way they've adapted this terminology, your projected GST turnover is actually the month or the quarter in 2020 that we're testing mm -hmm. and the current GST turnover as not intuitive as it sounds, is actually the turnover for that month or that quarter in 2019. So they shouldn't have used the expression current GST turnover because it's confusing everybody. It actually means the 2019 figure. It is, so it is very confusing. Confusing me. So, yeah, it's very, it is a <laughs> challenge to make sure you're talking. You cannot just use the terminology. You actually have to, you know, continuously explain what that means, you know, go back. They are there are defined terms. You can't just take the ordinary meaning. Mm. And so when we look at the projected GST turnover with the current GST turnover, that is based on the making of a supply. Has the entity made a supply or is it likely to make a supply? And the making of a supply under the GST law has nothing to do with cash or accruals. The making of a supply is me selling you the good or the service, the basically entering into of the obligation, being committed to the delivery of that supply. Yes. Whether you've issued an invoice, when you get paid for it, has nothing to do with whether a supply has been made. Cash and accruals is an attribution rule. And that's all about when the GST liability arises and when you have to account for GST in your activity statements. Now, the ATO has provided some guidance, and I have to say it has been somewhat confusing. And I think they would at least acknowledge that they have been required to amend their guidance. And even I the new guidance, I don't think particularly... <laughs> I call the guidance cryptic. I think that's what it is. <laughs> so it does say that yep. if you're... Um, accounting on the, well, I think it says you can use the accrual basis to calculate your turnover. And if you use the cash basis for your GST, you can use the cash basis to work out your turnover for JobKeeper purposes. But it doesn't actually tell us, can someone on cash use accruals? Can someone on accruals use cash? Both of which have nothing to do with whether you've made a supply in the first place. Mm -hmm. So yep. it's not helpful that the rules are referring to concepts that are highly technical and difficult concepts, which don't have a lot to do with what figures you're actually reporting in your activity statement. So I understand the ATA is trying to be practical with this, but we still need some clear guidance on this issue. 
We need some guidance. Again, this this comes down to eligibility. Employers need to know if they're eligible. They're, they're currently quite concerned about thinking they're eligible and it turns out that they're not because they've done the calculation on the wrong information and so forth and then they're concerned about the ATO coming back and, and uh, undertaking, you know, compliance action in relation to their position that they were eligible. So that's why we need clarity so that there can be some assurance for employers out there. And I, I do think, I mean, the ATO has generally said, you know, use the information that's available to you, undertake your test, you know, when you're doing it on a projected basis, undertake your test on the information that you've got available to you. And and they have kind of said, you know, if it doesn't end up being, you know, quite 30% as, you know, in terms of what you expected, they're not necessarily going to take a strong compliance position on that. Uh, You might want to elaborate on kind of the ATO's position. But I, I do think that's in keeping with the spirit of the the policy that the government and the intention the government's trying to to um, have achieved through this mechanism. But um, I think, Nicole, it's important to understand that if you are able to demonstrate you're eligible, which is based on a projection, then nothing in these rules says, you know, if you had projected that your June quarter or your April month turnover is 32% down on that equivalent period last year, and when you actually lodge that activity statement, it turns out to be only 28%, there's nothing in these rules that says you've got to pay it back. Now, there are overpayment rules, so if you are entering into schemes or if you're not basing your projections on a a reasonable basis, uh, then certainly there is scope for the ATO to come back and impose penalties and, and interest. But the sheer fact that you've lost an activity statement that turned out to be different historically from what you had projected, I don't think is grounds for the ATO to come and claim back JobKeeper payments. No, and certainly if if there's no other mischief, for example, if the employees did all receive the wage condition, uh, so that the $1,500, then I don't think in those circumstances the ATO will, will ever seek to um, get the employer to repay that amount. You know, the, the, yep. the, the purpose was to get money by the employers into the hands of the employees. And if that's been achieved, they're going to be okay with that if, you know, they took all reasonable steps, as you said, and, and um, had regard to reasonable information. So I think, you know, employees should be um, assured by that. But again, just um, the concern is that these are eligibility questions and employers are concerned that, as you say, four days out from the end of the month where you need to enrol, but you also need to meet the wage condition, which you're in some cases only going to do if you're sure that you're eligible. For example, for those casual employees that are only getting 300 a fortnight. So whilst the ATO has said you can enrol up to the end of May, that's fine in one respect, but you still have to have met the wage condition by the end of April. So you still need to know if you're eligible to then go through that enrolment process and of course to make sure that at least by the end of May, that by the 30, sorry, at least by the end of April, the 30th of April, you have met that wage condition for all eligible employees. So again, the the question of whether an employer is eligible is is fundamental to this and there's a lot of employers that just um uh you know, whether they are or not can turn on a very, you know, uh, I guess, small thing or can turn on the definition of now, for example, for charities, it can turn on the definition of government revenue. Does it include state government or federal government revenue? So there's employers really just hanging, you know, you know, on waiting for more information and clarification. And that's why it's essential that the, you know, Treasury, the Treasurer, Treasury and the ATO are... Uh, being clear with the, the requirements, the terminology and so forth. We haven't necessarily seen that, but again, it's, it's, uh, I think it's a, a result of it being a rush mechanism, which was needed in the circumstances. Look, I agree, and I want to comment on the alternative decline in turnover test. We got the detail on this last Thursday, the 23rd of April. So again, to give this context, if you are required under the rules, and this is the basic rule, to compare your month or your quarter in the JobKeeper period in 2020 with that comparable month or quarter back in 2019, that's fine. You, you work through it and you either meet the 30% minimum requirement or you don't. And I'm talking about someone under 1 billion of aggregated turnover. 
But what if you didn't exist last year? What if there was no 2019? What if there was a 2019, but that month or that quarter a year ago was simply not appropriate to compare to the current month or quarter? So since these rules were announced on the 30th of March and since we saw the registered rules on the 9th of April, we've known that the ATO was going to provide some guidance on this alternative decline in turnover test. And we finally got the detail on last Thursday. I'm not going to go through each one of the seven different alternative decline in turnover tests. What I will say is it's important to understand that if you pass the basic test, the basic decline in turnover test, you are not required to go and consider the alternative test. That's right. More importantly, if you do pass the basic test and you somehow have an urge to go and work your way through the alternative test, which you're not required to do, and you establish through that that you're ineligible, it actually doesn't change your eligibility at all. So I want to make it clear that if for any reason you'd passed the basic test, but when you applied the alternative test you weren't eligible, it actually doesn't prevent you being eligible under the basic test. That overrules everything. So you'd only go to the alternative test if you actually don't pass the basic test. Yes, or, now, or as you say, if the business has, had just commenced so it wasn't actually trading at that particular time, um, you, that's when you might have to go to the alternative test yep. as your and only with option. With the alternative test, for those that have started to work through that level of detail, there is in fact often a set of criteria or eligibility conditions to apply the particular alternative test. So there are seven different tests and there are conditions you need to meet to even apply the alternative test. And I'm referring to each one of those seven. Some of them we are definitely needing clarification on because it is not clear how we actually calculate whether we're eligible to use them. And then once you've done that, then the rules modify the month or the quarter that we would be looking at in 2019 to some other period. And the rules set out um, exactly which periods you would refer to or had calculate some sort of an average or refer to a different month instead. And then that, which comes out of the alternative rules, is then compared to the projected DST turnover, which is what we started with. So it's all very convoluted. Um, I have it asked is. the ATO to, consi to consider because we only got this detail last Thursday and now we've had further changes, which we're going to run through in a moment, uh, regarding the Treasurer's proposed amendments and they were announced on Friday. And because of this wage condition due this Thursday, mm. this is not the sort of thing that the average practitioner could just sit down, sorry, I'll rephrase that, the average business could sit down and work through and say, yes, I can establish I'm eligible and let's go and, and proceed with this. Most of them would need to seek advice from their tax agent, their practitioner yes. or a legal practitioner. Mm -hmm. They're all booked up at the moment and trying to get into an accountant would be very difficult this week. Yes. And the accountant then needs to work through it, establish whether the business is eligible. If they are, then they would need to enrol and there are still some hiccups and system issues within the enrolment process which are being sorted out by the ATO. They would need to give all the nomination forms out to their employees, get the forms back from their employees because they have to agree to be nominated before they're eligible and pay the wages by this Thursday. And I think that's a big ask. It is. And this is why, you know, businesses are struggling at the moment when they, they're not the kind of vanilla business that, you know, I, I guess upon announcement of the JobKeeper scheme all seemed quite easy. You know, if your turnover has reduced this year compared to last year, then you're in. But there's just so many circumstances where they're just not going to, um, don't meet that kind of vanilla structure. So, for example, whether they were a business that was really scaling up or where they've had some acquisitions or disposals over the past year, where they've had internal restructures. Um, and I think the, the, um, the last uh, category of the alternative test is a really interesting one. So that's where you've got a sole trader or an individual partner who's critical to the, the turnover and the work that's, I guess, being produced within the business who was either on leave because, you know, this time last year they were travelling around Australia or something like that, or they were sick or they were injured. So therefore the business wasn't actually trading in the same way it normally does because it, without that sole trader or without that key individual partner, it's just not going to produce the same level, level of income. So there's some good alternatives for the, the non-vanilla kind of business. The problem is, as you say, very short um, period of time to work through those alternative tests. In this regard, I don't think the ATO's 
website guidance is helpful at all. You really need to find further guidance, which perhaps means going back to the actual um, Commissioner's legislative instrument to understand what those tests are. And as you say, it's really important that the first thing you need to work out which is the right category to apply for your particular um, employer client. Check that they're eligible under that particular category and then actually apply the, the test, the alternative declining turnover test. So there's a few steps that you need to work through as well. And as you say, doing that in four days and then getting all your employers, employees on board with their no nomination notices, it's going to be difficult. Um, final comments. I think we should comment on the announcements made by the Treasurer on Friday in his media release. So these are going to be legislative amendments to his legislative instrument. So in other words, there will be official changes made to the rules. And um, perhaps if we just touch on the key ones here. So a big one that a lot of people have been waiting on, the proposed amendments to allow service entity arrangements to be grouped. So the problem we've had all these weeks is you can have a business entity that suffered a decline in turnover, but the service entity separate but related hasn't. And so it's the one that employs the staff that it wouldn't be a eligible for JobKeeper. So this has been a huge problem for a number of businesses and this would appear to resolve that problem but we are after waiting for the detail of how those rules will work. That's right. We don't have the detail. I mean, I'm, you know, looking through the small amount of information that we have and I think for that service entity to be eligible, it's going to need to calculate the the, the turnover of its associated entities that it provides services to, that appears to be what the test will be, but we have no confirmation of that at all. So again, getting the actual amended rules is critical to those service entities being able actually to take that first step of, of testing eligibility. Can you comment perhaps, this is your area, Nicole, the, the charities change? Well, the charities change is, and note it's only for ACNC registered charities, so it's not for not-for-profits generally. The change for charities is that they will not have to include government revenue in the, their calculation of turnover. Now, this is a really important change because in some circumstances, that government revenue is going to continue, which might seem like, well, okay, they're perfectly fine and they're going to continue to get their income. But whilst the revenue might continue, they actually don't, aren't providing the services. So they're actually having to put off staff and they've still got some other overheads as well that that revenue needs to cover. And if their staff aren't working, they're also not generating the additional revenue that those staff would normally generate. So presumably funding, so funding from the public is not going to be out there. So well, that's right. big yeah. government grants, those government grants could be such a high proportion of their turnover that the 30%, or actually 15% for charities. But for ACNC registered may charities, not, it's 15%. Yeah. may not be met. Whereas if we take the government funding out of that calculation, we're left with basically their donations and gifts and things. Donations, and then you can look at that and, and see whether that's no dropped. generated income. That's right, yeah. So this yeah. is a really important change. The problem is we need clarity on what constitutes government revenue. Now, just um, from memory, the wording says that government revenue is uh, consideration for services provided to an Australian government agency. So... The question is then, what is an Australian government agency? Is an Australian government, is that inclusive of state governments? I think it is, but we need cl clarification on that. And I know that there are charities whose eligibility turned firstly on this change. So now that they don't have to include government revenue, they're now eligible. But I also know there's some charities that are whose eligibility will turn on whether state government revenue ha can be excluded as well as federal government revenue. And so if state government revenue is excluded, they're in and they can start to support all their workers who are otherwise um, you know, in um, difficult circumstances. So... All right, just two more I'm going to mention and then, then we'll need to wrap this one up. So yep. one in all in, um, I made the comment before, they're going to make the rules clear that, yes, it's definitely one in all in and we can't uh, select which employees that are eligible go into this. So I've made that comment already. And 16 and 17-year-olds, some of these ones are going to miss out. So this is referring to the part-time or the, the full-time, uh, the, the long-term casual who may have only been working one or two shifts a week at the local fast food joint and they were going to get a very nice pay rise and some of them were even looking at uh, buying cars and were going out, you know, looking at which cars they could purchase for this. 
they have announced that if you're 17 or younger, you're not financially independent. In other words, you're still living at home and you're a full-time student, you're not eligible for JobKeeper. And I think this is a sensible amendment. It'll be a prospective change, so uh, these people will get two fortnights out of it. But I, I don't believe this was ever intended to give pay rises to those who are what I'm going to call receiving pocket money. Yeah, look, it was going to be a huge windfall for them. So, um, yeah, that's unfortunate. They were on, on one side of the line for a start. Now they've gone over to the other side of the line. Um, but as you say, it's, it's probably a sensible change. Thank you, Nicole, again for your time this afternoon. Thanks for having me, Robin. It's, um, it's been good to talk about the JobKeeper payment. Of course, we haven't talked about anything else except this for the last couple of weeks. Um, and practitioners and in, indeed um, business owners should be aware that Tax Banter does run a number of online webinar and online training sessions to um, ensure that people know about how the JobKeeper payment works. So do get in touch with Tax Banter if you need some more and greater or more in-depth understanding of the JobKeeper payment or indeed any of the economic stimulus measures. Agreed. So thank you for listening to this episode of Taxiac. I've been chatting with Nicole Rowan, a senior tax trainer at Tax Banter. I have a special message at the end, but before I do that, please let me say, as always, that if you'd like to connect with us on social media, you can find Tax Banter on LinkedIn and Twitter. Let us know your take on episodes or suggest future topics or speakers. You can also get onto the Taxiac team on email, podcast at taxbanter.com.au and find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. If you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and write a review for the show wherever you are. It will help to improve the profile of the show and we would love to hear your thoughts. As I wrap up this episode, I would like to take a moment to say goodbye to all of our Taxiac listeners. I will be stepping down as host of the show due to my leaving tax banter. I shan't be leaving the profession. I would like to thank Tax Banter for its innovative decision to launch Taxiac back in September of 2018. Neil Jones, our director at Tax Banter, was our first guest and has appeared now eight times on the show. I would like to thank our broad array of guests over 39 episodes in 18 months, tax specialists who have brought their insights and made our conversations so engaging. But I would particularly like to thank you, our loyal listeners, who now span 57 countries around the world, 36,000 listeners since we began our show. It has been my absolute pleasure to host Taxiac, and I now leave you in the very capable hands of my tax banter colleagues and future hosts. Thank you all. Take care and stay safe. We look forward to you joining us next time.